Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Stanislav Grof, godfather of psychedelic psychotherapy, one of the founders of the field of transpersonal psychology, and a renowned researcher into the use of non-ordinary states of consciousness to gain insight into the human psyche. It was truly an honor to speak with Stanislav Grof, longtime leader at the Esalen Institute, and ask him how he helped shape the culture here through his popular workshops and his month-long programs. In our interview, we talked about his relationship with Michael Murphy and how he came to be invited to live in Big Sur and to teach at Esalen during the 1970s, how he created the practice of holotropic breathwork at the Esalen Institute out of necessity, his collaborations with Fritjof Capra, Gregory Bateson, Rupert Sheldrake, and more. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with the man, the myth, the legend, Stanislav Grof. I wonder if we could start off by you telling me the circumstances that brought you to the Esalen Institute. Mm -hmm. Well, I was involved in uh, basically the last surviving uh, psychedelic research program, which was at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, around 1972 to 73 it became more and more difficult to get the permission to get the money. And I had, um, you know, a lot of material already from Prague, but also from, from Maryland. So I decided to take a year off. I got, also got married to uh, Joan Halifax, who's an anthropologist from uh, Miami. And uh, she couldn't get a really decent uh, job, uh, appropriate, uh, appropriate to her education in, in Baltimore. So I decided to take a year off and uh, write a couple of books. I got uh, actually in, within a very short time uh, offers from publishers because we were the last uh, uh, official uh, psychedelic uh, research program. And this was the time when LSD was making headlines everybody was interested in it. So they, uh, they approached me if I would, uh, you know, write a book or two. And uh, so I got a contract with Viking Press. I had money for, for a year. And uh, I went to a party in uh, New York City, uh, the Schwartzes. Bob Schwartz was also somebody who was very much around SLN. And uh, Michael Murphy was at the, at the party and he said, so what are you doing these days then? I said, well, actually I'm taking a sabbatical. I'm going to write a book. And Michael said, why don't you come to SLN? You know, SLN is a beautiful place to write a book. I said, we, you know, we'll give you some accommodation and uh, you can do some workshops for us and we're going to be a trade-off. So um, he came here in uh, 1973, John and I, and uh, this uh, house um, on Buck Creek was, was available because uh, um, Ida Rolf moved out. So we had this, you know, beautiful, beautiful house uh, on the ocean and uh, this incredible deal with Esalen, you know, trading the room and board for, for workshops. I know you had been involved with Abraham Maslow because you had been involved with the founding of transpersonal psychology, uh, but had you ever been to Esalen before, or was this a concept that was introduced to you by Michael? No, actually I was at Esalen the first time uh, in 1965. I, I was um, on, a, on a study journey here for uh, several months. 
and uh, I had I had sort of I didn't have any money uh, I had but I had addresses of people uh, where I could go it was, uh, uh, Theo and Ruth Lids were in uh, in New Haven who were doing research with uh, schizophrenic families and then uh, I had spent some time uh, with uh, Virginia Satir at the conference in uh, uh, London and I heard an invitation from her and then also Betty Eisner from Los Angeles so I could you know go and so I had I had ways of staying in different places and just the United States. And when I was staying with uh, Virginia Satir, I always uh, took a bus, you know, to San Francisco and did some, did some uh, sightseeing and then came back for the night uh, to Palo Alto. That time was very, everything was very cheap. At a point, uh, Virginia Satir said, you know, you'll be here alone uh, for the weekend because I'm going south. And of course, I was very curious to see new places. He said that, where are you going? And she says, well, it's this place called Esalen. And so I said, well, you know, can I go with you? And she said, sure. And we ar- arrived here, you know, late at night. And uh, she had Michael's room in, in uh, the big house. But there was no, um, you know, accommodation for me. So she said, you know, you can come and sleep uh, in my room. So there was a king-sized bed. And so then Michael, Michael Murphy walked into the uh, into the room in the morning and saw me in bed with Virginia Satir. And we really hated of uh, Michael and I. We he was at that time very interested in Eastern Europe, what was happening in, in both Russia but also the other Eastern European countries. So we had great discussions and, uh, you know, he uh, took me, we went to, to see Point 16 at that time was for sale, so we drove up and down the coast. And so I had this connection with Michael. And then when I came uh, in 19, 1967, when I came to the States, as I was working in uh, Maryland, at the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, I was taking quite a few weekends um, and come here and do workshops at SLN. I'm really curious about those workshops that you taught, because I know later when you came in the 1970s, you were able to develop the field of holotropic breathwork which I want to get into later, uh, but the initial workshops that you taught in the 1960s, what was the content of that? Well, I was just talking about the research that I have done in in Prague, uh, you know, the kind of uh, image of the psyche that emerged out of it. I had the concept of uh, what I call the coex systems, uh, you know, the those kind of memory constellations and also the perinatal, perinatal matrices. So uh, I, this was basically... Uh, theoretical talk, no no experiential part. And um, um, Paul Herbert was here, he was a kind of a chronicler, he was going to all these workshops and recording it for Dolphin Tapes. And when he saw that, he said, you know, what you're talking about, Stan, is just like what uh, Abe Maslow talks about. And he, the two of you could really get together. And so he gave me Abe Maslow's um, address and at that point, I had a I had a book about this thick, you know, that never got published, um, but then became about five books later. It was called Agony and Ecstasy in Psychiatric Treatment. And I sent it to Abe, and I got this very enthusiastic letter. He wanted me to come and see him in, in Boston. And um, so I, I flew to Boston and uh, came to his house and rang the bell, and his wife Bertha showed up in the in the door. And uh, I had this very strong feeling of not being welcome. So sort of almost she was almost like blocking the door with her body, you know. I said, 
what's happening here? We've never met before. And then she finally reluctantly let me in the house and, and Abe was lying on the second floor there, uh, recovering from a pretty heavy heart attack. And we had a beautiful time. We talked for hours and basically looking at the parallels. Uh, his uh, peak experiences, his, his uh, research with spontaneous mystical experiences. And I was talking about and writing about uh, mystical experiences induced by psychedelics. And he was very excited about the parallels. And so then uh, after finished talking, there was a dinner uh, in the kitchen. And then uh, Bertha finally told me what the problem was, that when Abe got that, uh, that manuscript from me and was reading it, he was getting so excited that she was afraid that when we get together, he's going to be too much for him and he might have another heart attack. So she was basically protecting him. So uh, Abe uh, at that time got a uh, scholarship, I think it was McLaughlin uh, Foundation, if I remember correctly, in Palo Alto. So he could move from uh, New England to Palo Alto. They gave him a house with a swimming pool and he could just think and write. And so he, uh, at that point, uh, uh, together with uh, Tony Sutich, they were thinking about uh, creating a, a discipline of psychology that was go beyond humanistic psychology. You know, and, and the late, in the 50s, they, they created this humanistic psychology, which was a correction over behaviorism and, and Freudian psychoanalysis, which became extremely um, successful, you know, very popular, both for professionals and also lay people. There were very exciting conferences. But within the first 10 years of the existence of humanistic psychology, they themselves became dissatisfied because they left out spirituality, they left out mysticism, you know, even even sort of creativity, higher creativity. And so they felt they had to create a new discipline that would include this. And uh, they wanted to call it transhumanistic. And uh, Abe invited me to be part of these small meetings. So there were two of them, um, Abe um, Maslow, Tony Sutich, and there was Jim Ferryman also, uh, Miles Vick, and uh, Sonia Margulies. So they're very small, small groups. And we were getting together and kind of brainstorming, you know, what this new discipline would look like. We wanted it to include some of the some domains that uh, they left out, but also include the, the material from psychedelic research. And so we finally got together a system that we felt very comfortable with. You know, it was uh, uh, something that incorporated these um, observations from consciousness research, but also um, incorporated spirituality, did make uh, uh, psychotics out of every founder of religion and an uh, apostle and uh, shamans and so on, treated sort of with respect uh, the ritual, spiritual history of, of humanity. But we had this major problem because uh, there was no way we could somehow reconcile what we saw as viable psychology with what we knew as science, which was basically materialistic science. And so that's a whole other uh, kind of part of the history. Uh, for me, uh, the major breakthrough was meeting Fritjof Capra after he wrote the Tao of Physics and uh, showing that, uh, you know, basically we were trying to 
reconcile uh, the, the new psychology with uh, what he called uh, the Cartesian-Newtonian paradigm, monistic, materialistic science and so on. And he was talking about the fact that, that physicists themselves are far beyond uh, this Newtonian-Cartesian uh, paradigm with the quantum relativistic physics. And, you know, Fritjof and I uh, became friends and we traveled together and we were doing uh, workshops which were called uh, Journeys Beyond uh, Space and Time where Fritjof would take the morning and talk about what physicists discovered about in relation to matter. When lunch came, uh, uh, people's minds were totally blown because Fritjof was showing that uh, science, uh, the physics showed that if you study the uh, matter to the, to the uh, subatomic level, that what we could call stuff ceases to exist. They are just uh, uh, probabilistic equations, and you, and you cannot even say whether a certain particle is there or, ne- not, or not. There are certain tendencies to exist and so on. Uh, there was the Big Bang, you know, uh, 13.8 billion years ago. There was a singularity, dimensionless point, and that exploded out of it came like uh, time and space, and, you know, all the all the matter that now creates like billions of galaxies and so on. And he talked about black holes and white holes and wormholes and also the fact that we shouldn't even use uh, nouns because everything in the universe is a process, vibration and so on. And so when people came after lunch and when I brought my stuff from psychedelic sessions, it looked pretty down to earth as compared to what Fritjof was talking about. And I was talking about how you see things in certain non-ordinary states of consciousness, whereas he was talking about matter, that, that you know, material world that we live in. Uh, the next chapter, big chapter for me, uh, I should I should mention that we, we had these meetings and then finally we, we had this discipline and they finally changed the, the name transhumanistic to transpersonal, which was a, a name that I gave to a group of uh, experiences that were you know, transcendental experiences. I talked about the biographical level, the perinatal level, and then the the transpersonal level, and uh, uh, both Abe and uh, Tony Sutich like that name, so they changed the transhumanistic into transpersonal. But then I was still in in uh, uh, Baltimore, so the next chapter then was when I came to SLN, where initially uh, people were not very happy uh, when I was talking about the research that we have done. And they said, well, it's all it's great to hear about these fantastic experiences, but can't we do something? Uh, do you have a little stash on the side, you know? Can, can't we have the experiences? I said, you know, I, I don't have the license here for that, and I don't think Esalen would be very happy. And so I started uh, thinking about, uh, you know, what could we do experientially? And I remember that, uh, in some of the sessions, the early sessions, uh, when uh, my patients felt unfinished, uh, the drug was wearing off and uh, it was not a good, good closure of the experiences, a couple of them asked me to do some uh, physical intervention, like the first uh, of those uh, uh, clients uh, was coming down from the session. I was really mad, was angry, and had pain in the shoulder. And he says, you know, I feel if I could get through this pain, I would feel better. Could you put some pressure there? 
so I put some pressure and he says, not enough more, you know, and my, my thumb was already breaking and it was not enough. And finally he started screaming and, and, uh, and growling and coughing and shaking. And we did it for, for a while, maybe 20 minutes, and he was relaxed and he was in a great place. And the next time it was a, a female patient who uh, was again kind of coming down, uh, was terrible, terrible nausea. And so I came and she says, I have really bad feelings here. And so, you know, I would come like a doctor and would sort of poke there a little. And there was a projectile vomiting that just missed me, you know, from a few, few inches. I two, two episodes of that and she felt great. And so I saw that we can do things to get better integration of psychedelic sessions. So I started doing it routinely. And then it happened that in uh, several patients, this body work triggered fast breathing, kind of what's called saccadic breathing. <laughs> and then they told me that the faster breathing took them back into the session. The drug was already worn off. But the breathing suddenly brought them, they were like in the middle of the session again. So I saw that uh, faster breathing can somehow bring material out of the unconscious to, to consciousness. And so we started playing with it, breathing, and we brought the music, which we're also, we were using in, in uh, psychedelic sessions. And uh, What was the music like? We had actually a music therapist who would sit down with the, with the patients and uh, ask about their tastes and interests. So they were more sophisticated patients. We had a training for professionals using psychedelics. And they, you know, they liked uh, classical music and quite a few also had uh, a certain sophistication in spiritual matters. So they wanted shamanic music or, or you know, some kind of uh, um, Hindu bhajans or kirtans or, you know, kachak or something like that. But they also we worked with alcoholics who had much simpler tastes. And so we bought even things like Mahalaya Jackson and uh, things like that, you know. So... Um, the general idea was to, to bring in music that would support where people were. So let's say if it was very clearly that they're very angry, you know, we bring some drumming and some very intense music. And if they were, uh, you know, pelvic movements showing that there's something sexual, we would play Scheherazade or something. When it was, you know, already at the end and and uh, it's coming to, to the closure, we would use some uh, kind of timeless floating meditative music, ragas or something like that. And, but again, you know, looking at the nature of the experience itself and the and the taste or the background of the of the patients, yeah. Well, I initially we were working such that, that we're, the group was lying with the heads towards the center and they were kind of holding hands and we let them breathe faster and we were playing the music. And uh, then there was always somebody, sometimes more than one, close to the experience. And that this triggered you know, really a process in them and we, we would sort of uh, stop and then we do uh, this work, the body work with... Uh, these people, sometimes we ended up with three people in process, you know, uh, Christina would work with one person, I would work with the other, and then some people in the group would be just taking care of the third person, and then when one of us was finished, we would just move. So sometimes it became like a chain. And then something amazing happened. Uh, 
we had this uh, Buck Creek house. Uh, there was a, probably a quarter of an acre or more of, uh, it was like poison oak and birds and uh, stuff. And we wanted to have a garden, so we created terraces and we were growing veggies there. And so I was working in the garden quite a bit. And at one point I was uh, creating terraces and I was lifting a beam and I threw off my back to the point that it was like I was in agony. We had a king-sized bed, and I was on one side, Christina on the other. And when I when she moved, it was like getting a dagger. And we had a group of 46 people, you know. And as you know, people come here from Australia or Europe or South America. So uh, we promised the breathwork, and, and so this, what are we going to do? I can't come close to somebody and do body work, you know. It's like because it it rattles you. You go with the, with the process. And so what do we do? And then after a while, we said, well. Why don't we pair them up and just uh, tell them what to do and, and just supervise it? And so we did that, and uh, the session was such a success that we never did it differently. You know, not only now, most of the people in the in the half of the group had you know pretty significant experiences, but the sitters told us how much they got out of it, what a privilege it was to be there with another person, such intimate process and so on. And so, so this was suddenly, a, you know, a whole other new form of it that we just uh, continue until today. And the groups, you know, grew from the 36 that we had the maximum that we could accommodate here to we had 460 people in Moscow breathing. You know. How long were you here from 1973 on? 14 years. You stayed 14 years? 14 years, yeah. Oh, yeah. incredible. No, we did like a lot of um, uh, weekends, a lot of five days, and then uh, every year there were two, two of those months longs. How do you think it changed the character of the Esalen culture for many people there to be doing the holotropic breathwork? Uh, well, it was it was the holotropic breathwork, but also the, the month longs. People really loved that, you know. Uh, and for me, it was an incredible blessing. I mean, uh, I came from uh, Johns Hopkins seven, seven years at the university, and we had every Wednesday we had uh, a seminar when they invited like the stars of the, you know, of the time, the cutting edge, what they thought was, which was mostly like a new antidepressant or some new tranquilizer. So it was boring as compared to what was happening here. This was really the cutting edge at that time. And uh, I had this really privileged position where I could decide uh, what the topic of the month long and then who were the people, you know, whom I would like to spend some time and and learn from. And uh, everybody wanted to come to SLN. SLN, you know, is a beautiful place. And and so uh, people were very, very excited to come here. And so we had uh, 31 of these, of these, actually, 29 and two were six weeks, six week uh, workshops. You have you have in the SLN office you have uh, the old catalogs, so you can see the the lineups. I mean the the guest faculty, unbelievable. You know there was Joseph Campbell was in most of them, uh, Houston Smith, you know uh, Frischoff Capra, uh, Rupert Sheldrake. Uh, there were a lot of yogis, uh, shamans, you know. Tibetan Tibetan teachers and so on. Quite quite an amazing lineup. I don't think any any university has uh, that kind of a faculty. You know. Talk to me about some of the collaborations that you made. Uh, who would you say was your closest or most frequent collaborator at Esalen? Well, Gregory Bateson was here. He was uh, diagnosed uh, with a cancer that was a big 
tumor, they said, of the size of the grapefruit sitting on Vena Cava, and they gave him four weeks. And again, he met Michael, and Michael said, Gregory, if you're dying, why don't you come to Esalen? Esalen is a great, great place to die. So he came, and then everybody who had any healing sort of uh, ambitions, you know, descended on him. So there were anybody from, you know, acupuncturists to Filipino psychic healers and so on. And he lived two and a half years. So I had this great privilege to be in close contact, daily contact with Gregory Bateson, you know. Dick, Dick Price was an incredible, incredible support. He was the visionary here, you know, at the time. And he uh, also had three episodes of uh, what I would call spiritual emergency, but what was called the you know, psychotic episodes. Very fascinating. In one of them, he had a past life in, uh, at the time of Alexander the Great, and he was recognizing the people there and telling the history there. And his uh, parents were quite affluent. They took him to what was considered elite uh, institution, which was the Institute of Living in, uh, in New Haven. Yeah. And they gave him any number of uh, shocks, electroshocks, insulin. Nobody thought that this was fascinating, what was, what was happening, studying it. They just, you know, the, all they knew is to hit him over the head to, to get it out of him. Uh, this happened twice, and then the third time he refused and he stayed here. He had a friend called Patrick, and he ended up in some log house here, and Patrick was bringing him food, and he just worked through it by himself. So then when we came up with the concept of spiritual emergency and, and Christina started the spiritual emergence network, uh, Dick was an incredible supporter of that. He gave us a house and four scholars, you know, and, and he's, he is also supporting any anything that was any innovation, anything exciting he wanted to have here at the salon. Was, was really, the primary thing was the, the the vision, and it was you know a tragedy. He was uh, after the after the great uh, fire and then the rains. The uh, the mountains were loose, and he used to go meditate in the, in the canyon, the Redwood Canyon, and he was sitting, and a boulder came down, which they estimated to be like five tons, and then exploded and laid him in the head, and so it killed him. And uh, I think, you know, an, an important part of Esalen died there. I mean, I, I really felt the, the absence of him. He was the, he was the spirit that was driving this. Uh, and it was an amazing funeral, kind of really tribal, tribal, you know, such, a, such an important figure. Did you have connections with Gabrielle Roth? Because I think about the trance-inducing aspect of the holotropic breathwork, and I feel like there's some similarity between. Uh, well, between we had the work. Her, again. We'd had her in the in the months longs, and we had her in. Uh, I didn't get into that part yet uh, in the international transpersonal uh, conferences. You know, she was always there doing the five five uh, yeah. movements and stuff. But that was a, that was another situation that uh, I just created this close friendship connection with um, you know all the major stars the cutting edge and the consciousness research you know new paradigm and stuff and because we met here you know uh, in the big house usually in a very informal situation sitting on pillows and so on quite different uh, from the setting where these people presented their ideas normally which was like a auditorium and official thing you know lectern and so on where they had to be very careful what they say and uh, protecting their image and so on whereas here we really got uh, you know the, the their thinking in a, in a pure form 
very informal. Then we all ended up naked in the in the bath, and we continued the discussions there, you know. And so I developed a relationship. When then uh, I started the International Transpersonal Association. I was in a position where I could pick up the telephone and choose any of those people and say, you know, uh, Carl, we, we're going to have a conference in uh, international transpersonal conference in Bombay. We can't pay any honoraria, but we'll pay for the airplane ticket and we'll put you, put you up in the hotel and feed you. Would you come? And nobody ever turned down. And everybody coming without without honoraria was this. I've never heard any about anything like that, you know, but other conferences. There was actually, when transpersonal psychology started, we initially, initially initiated a group of us. Uh, it was uh, Ken Godfrey, Walter Penke, uh, Helen Bonney, uh, John Lilly, and those were meetings in Council Grove, several of them, and then uh, became clear that we should have international conferences. And there was a... Um, a couple from Iceland, uh, Gail Williamson and, and his, um, his wife. Uh, so they created two international conferences in, uh, in uh, Iceland. And then the third one was in Inari in Lapland, in northern, northern Finland. And then the fourth one was in, uh, in uh, Belo Horizonte, which was in, in uh, Brazil. And at this, at the end of this conference, he says, "You know, we have this. We're having these international uh, meetings. Why don't we create uh, an organization that would sort of be a container for it?" And so everybody says, "Great, let's do it." And uh, then, you know, who's going to be the president? And then somebody said, "Stan Grof," and somebody seconded it. And uh, I ended up, you know, doing things that uh, I was not really used to doing, administration and stuff like that. But I, I decided, okay, I'm going to take it on. And I came here uh, to Esalen and then uh, thinking about uh, how do you start a non-profit organization? And then turned out that I needed three members for that. And I was alone and I was asking people and they had mixed feelings about it. And then I came to uh, Michael Murphy and to Dick, Dick Price. And would you be the member, founding members of this? And they say, sure, we'll sign it. So on paper, you know, they are the, the two of them are co-founders of, uh, of uh, this ITA. Did your time at Esalen make an impact on you personally? Were there things about the land and the place that changed you? Well, I just loved it. You know, this was the, the most interesting time of my life, of course. And, uh, you know, I would not be professionally where I am now without all those connections and the input from those people. It was just, you know, coming here, I was here. It was all sort of coming from all over the world. So. It was an amazing, amazing gift for me. And of course, the, you know, the sacredness of that place. And, uh, uh, you know, I had, a, I had also a few sessions, you know, which I don't usually talk about. Um, so it's an incredible, I mean, some experiences that, that I had here, you know, it's uh, uh, with and without uh, psychedelics, yeah. And, uh, and you, you asked before how I think that the, the, the breathwork changed Esalen. Uh, I think the breathwork did, and but also the months long. People just love the, the quality of the input that was here, you know, to, again, we opened it uh, to quite a few people in Esalen, so they participated in this, uh, in this and uh, if it was not uh, full participation, 
because that was limited by the floor space for the for the breathwork. But we we open up the uh, the presentations, the lectures, and stuff like that. Or in the in the Buddhist workshop that we did, we had a Korean swordsman, amazing, in front of the office there. We had the performance of this Korean swordsman, which was unbelievable. And he was blindfolded and uh, had a. a uh, couple of uh, uh, like s- students, disciples, and uh, one of them uh, sort of took off his shirt, was lying on the, on the um, grass. They put a, a stool on each side and they put a watermelon on each of them and then watermelon on the belly of this, uh, this guy. And he went like good four or five meters away and he showed a samurai sword, which was uh, one of those that cut hair, you know, this takes like 3,000 heating and dipping in water and God knows what. And he showed also a solid bag, a velvet, black velvet bag. He put it over his head and he was standing there like good, good five, four or five meters from him uh, in this kind of position. And that at a certain point, he let out this warrior scream and that all the dogs started barking in the, and then he, he the kind of a somersault over one of his uh, uh, arms, holding this sword, ending up in, in uh, above this guy. He chopped the, the melon on the right, on the left, and then on the belly of this guy. And it just fell apart, and there was like a napkin under it, and it was just a little indention. Uh, I mean, blindfolded, you know. And so we had a discussion afterwards. People saying, "How do how do you do that? Do you do sort of um, memorize it? You know how it is? You know, how do you do it?" And and, and he said, um, "No, you just meditate until all is one, and then there's no problem. You did the swordsman, the sword, the, the melon, the guy. It's just one." So anyway, so there were these kinds of you know presentations. We always open to excellence. So there was a there was an exciting, enthusiastic spirit when everybody. Everybody was looking forward to the next one, what yeah. it's going to bring. In another one, we, we brought uh, Luis Gasparetto, who's a spiritist uh, psychologist from uh, Palo Alto. And uh, he goes into a trance and he paints in the style of dead masters. And uh, so we went to Palo, uh, the, the uh, San Paulo and we discovered him and we were just uh, planning a month long, which was called energy. Uh, uh, physical, emotional, and spiritual. We said this would be great, you know. So we invited him, and he came. And uh, on the way, he stopped in uh, Los Angeles with uh, Thelma Moss, who was a parapsychologist, a friend of mine. Uh, and he did a performance there in her apartment, and all the lights uh, on the block went out. And uh, when they, the, the lights came back on, they found out that he continued painting, that he didn't need light and so painted, you know, paintings. And so we said, that's great, but we don't want him to paint in darkness. People wanted to see it. So we uh, did, in, in the old Huxley, we did a red light because you cannot distinguish colors in with red light. And so he was sitting in the middle and uh, he wanted uh, the, this was the 
uh, seasoned from Vivaldi played. This was ins inspiration for him. And he was in the middle in, at the table and Christina was just handing him, you know, big uh, sheets of paper. And he was painting, much of the time didn't look, was just looking up and just painting, sometimes painting, you know, two paintings, one of each with each hand. At one point he painted one upside down with his legs, just putting colors on his on his bed, like Monet, Manet, you know, these kinds of things. So he ended up in an hour, like we had 26 paintings here. For a, for a long time they were hanging in different cabins at Esteline, you know. And so those were, those were the kind of, um, you know, performances. And this uh, Luis Gasparetto actually finished these 26 paintings and was still sitting there like it was not quite finished. And then said, there is a spirit here. He, he calls himself uh, Fritz Perls. Uh, he wanted to be painted by Toulouse-Lautrec. And so he did that, got, the, you know, got Fritz Perls, and then sit, set sort of more and then said, there's another spirit, this Ida Rolf. And she was she wants to be painted the way she looked like when she was forty, and she came she was probably seventy or something like that, and so he did that. And I remember uh, Dick Price then uh, corresponded with Germany. I don't know how long, trying to get a photograph of what Ida Rolf looked like when she was forty. I'm curious what it's like for you. It feels like there's a bit of a psychedelic renaissance going on right now, as the therapeutic use of psychedelics hits the mainstream. What is it like for you and your legacy as this topic goes mainstream? It's kind of sweet and sour, you know. It's uh, it's exciting that it's coming back, but it's also 40, 40 years left where we could have been, you know. Uh, and uh, the other thing is not a lot of uh, stuff that's happening that's new, uh, except, uh, I think, uh, the Midhoffers, the, the MDMA treatment of uh, PTSD, that's a new thing. The rest of it's, it's interesting that it's happening, but it's a repetition of the old, that in, you know, with the cancer patients. We have done it 40 years ago. Actually, when we asked for more money, they said, we have already proved that it's useful. It should go now to the hospital. There's no need to, uh, you know, research it any further. And, of course, it didn't, didn't happen. And now it's going to take quite a while before it goes mainstream, if it goes ever mainstream. The MDMA, I think, has a chance because the, the, MD, the PTSD is such a, such a formidable problem, you know, yes. mental health, uh, economic, political problem, and nothing else is helping. So that, that has a chance. And what about depression? Depression is very, actually, most types of depression are very, very uh, flexible. They even, they come frequently, periodically. They, they're not something that's like, you know, um, uh, infiltrating the whole system. And so, uh, so um, we see sometimes people moving out of depression, you know, longer depression in a couple of uh, holotropic breathwork sessions. And also it's, it's quite responsive to psychedelic sessions. You know, I, I feel that, you know, there's a, there is something that could be a psychedelic of the future, which is the... Uh, uh, the methoxy, methoxy DMT, which comes out of the toad, out of the parotid glands, that's you can you can have powerful healing and transformation happening within an hour, which is the time of one se session of psychoanalysis. You know where you wouldn't even start uh, talking about your story, and, and you already would have really significant uh, results. And it's kind of. Uh, 
you know, makes me makes me angry that if you have such a problem like PTSD, that they are not somewhat experimental or adventurous. You know, this all that nonsense through the FDA, and this has been this has been used by Indians, you know, for for centuries. If if there was something really noxious, uh, it would not have continued. I mean. It, you know, so, so things like the, the mushrooms and, and the peyote and, and this, uh, this methoxy DMT in the toe, this has been already to testing done. There's no necessary for, for FDA to put millions of dollars into it. And also, you know, the, the, the research that would interest me, the new research would be uh, research of creativity. It's known that pe people got Nobel prices, you know, for um, discoveries that they claimed they did uh, under LSD, including, you know, Francis, Francis Crick, uh, the DNA, and uh, Kari Mullis, the, the polymerase uh, chain. So uh, I would like to see, you know, people who are quantum relativistic physicists or biologists and uh, even mathematicians, you know, what they could, what they could do in those states. Willis Harman wrote a wonderful book, which is called Eye of Creativity. How many of major breakthroughs in science, in, you know, mathematics, uh, certainly music, art, you know, were, were done in non-ordinary states of consciousness. And so that would be exciting new research, you know, that I would like to see. But unfortunately, uh, there was a hierarchy when we were asking for permission to do research. The easiest was to get it for cancer patients. Yeah because they would die anyway, so they, people didn't feel that they're taking chances, the administrators and so on. The most difficult was uh, to get the permission to use it with psychologists and psychiatrists for training sessions, because then if something happens, that's a major problem. You don't have you know, serious medical reasons to, to do that, you know. So again, creativity to do, creativity, uh, you know, study in, in creative people who don't have any medical uh, condition that you would justify it with. It's going to be one that, uh, that's very difficult to get permission for. I guess I'll just close by asking, what lies in the future for you? Well, I was invited by uh, Shift Network by Stephen Dynan to do a series of uh, uh, modules for, tele, tel, for tel, telecourse, uh, which were eight, eight weeks. Uh, and uh, they got a lot of, a lot of uh, response, there were over 600 people. And so they put a lot of pressure on me to do an advanced one. Uh, and they wanted 24 additional ones to, to eight. Uh, you know, where I had to really go into, into all kinds of new areas to come up with a new program every week, you know. Uh, and so I ended up with a lot of notes and uh, Brigitte was looking at it and listening to those uh, telecourses and she said, uh, why don't you write it up? So I have now um, a contract with MAPS and also with a Swiss publisher to uh, do two volumes, a kind of an encyclopedia of inner journeys. Everything that is, people should know if they do inner journeys or, or areas that would interest them because it opens up certain areas of interest. So I'm, I'm now working on the second volume. The first one is already written. Uh, the other thing I'm really very, very interested in to, to release the breathwork into the world. What is the best way if someone is 
super interested in uh, trying out the holotropic breathwork, but they're a complete novice. What is the best way to get into it? But there are a lot of people whom we trained who are offering it, you know, several of them in the Bay Area, for example, but in other parts of the so it would be to, depending on where they live, to look at the list of the facilitators and there are people who offer like workshops every, every month or so. Stan Groff, thank you so much for being here and I want to personally thank you. Your holotropic breathwork has given me some peak experiences, so I have great respect and great gratitude for the pioneering work that you've done. Thank you for having me. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldyn Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us or write a review. You can also find our episodes at eslen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well. <laughs>